name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The uh, Gospel is about seeing. And the ability to see here is not just that we have eyes and we look out and we see others and you and all of that. Because Christ does not say, oh, I saw you. And someone said, oh, Nathaniel. Rather, Christ saw him and knew what he was. You know, uh, we feel a little uncomfortable if we think we're in the presence of a saint and that, as we say, he sees right through us. What we mean is that uh, it is an unfortunate truth of human life, all human life, that when we are still quite young, we learn to wear masks. We wear special faces for special people, special faces for special occasions. Christ sees Nathanael and know that, knows that he is an Israelite indeed without guile. And Nathanael is surprised. I saw thee when thou wast under the, the tree there. Well, the ability to see, the ability to see the actual face. Where this comes into prominence is, of course, when you and I come to pray. We may be wearing a face for our parents or for our neighbors or for our colleagues at work or for co-students or all kinds of different people, for that particular girl, that particular boy, if we're girls. But uh, when we pray, we have to remember to take off the mask. It would be nice to go through a day without wearing any masks at all. The icon is the face of the person the prosopon, without masks. The image of God that we can see in each other's faces is the authentic self. Sometimes you and I have learned to wear masks so successfully for other people that the real tragedy is we also wear them for ourselves. And gradually, little by little, we cease to really know who we are. The situation is not at all helped by contemporary culture with its driving lyrics in popular songs, which again both belittle and diminish the human face as they falsify it. For Christ, there are no false faces. Christ does not see our masks. He sees only that we may be wearing one. What he actually sees is the true face, the truth of the person which we ourselves may not recognize. In monasticism, which is the italicization, the intensification of all human relationships, even if we're living as hermits out in the desert and don't see another human face 
for months on end. In monasticism, we are very conscious of the fact that one of our first acts is to pull off our masks. The face that gradually is revealed may not be a very nice face. <laughs> and I am not speaking here, obviously, of beauty in the physical sense, though perhaps in the moral sense I am. Who is the real me? If by the time I'm emerging out of the catalyst of high school and am becoming rather confused as to who I really am, as my parents attempt to remind me of my identity and modern times and peer group pressure are quite willing to bestow on me a very different and even contradictory identity, gradually more and more people try to thrust an identity on me, put a mask on me, I can forget what my own face looks like. Drugs, alcohol, the rest of it don't help. They merely make the task more difficult. The face that we behold in the icon, the icon, the image, that is to say, the face that is emerging when God creates Adam and Eve in his own image. He creates them as icons of himself, faces of himself. We are in the presence of the authentic icon. When we venerate a picture that has been painted by an iconographer of a saint, of our Savior, of those people that we know so well from the Bible and the lives of the saints and the history of the Church, we are encountering not a mask, but the reality of the authentic person himself. This is a most startling and remarkable thing. Saint Seraphim of Serov is giving us a teaching about icons, when we read in his life that when there was a knock on the door of his cabin, he would say, come in, addressing the person on the other side of the door before he saw who it was. Because he had a name for every person. He never said, come in, Ivan, come in, Sally, or Oh yes, who's there? He said, Come in, Radast Mayat. Come in, my joy. Now, his joy, who is knocking at the door, may be another monk from Sarov, whom he knows very well. It may be one of the villagers, whom he also may know very well. It may be a total stranger. It didn't matter to St. Seraphim of Sarov who the particular identity might be, because whoever it was, was his joy. It is rather startling to remember that even though St. Seraphim of Sarov was an extraordinarily well-built young man, he was a very powerfully muscular-built uh, uh, young man, he was set upon by three thugs, 
at one point, who were quite certain that under the boards of the floor of his hut was concealed a great quantity of gold. So they came and they beat him with staves, the, equivalent, the Russian equivalent of a baseball bat. They left him crippled for life. Now, by Russian standards of the day, he was taller, certainly, than they are. It's certainly more powerfully built. Certainly, he could have dealt with them. And he chose not to. He never stood up again. He was always bent over. We have portraits from life, not icons of the man, but uh, portraits from life. And he's bent forward from the waist like this. He never was able. They had injured his back so severely. And he lived a long life. What is extraordinary is that for sure when he heard them at the door, he said, come in my joy. Come in my joy. That meant that who they were was in fact who they were called to be by Christ. Who you are for your parents, who you are for your children, for your neighbors, for your co-workers, for your fellow students. In fact, at the base of all reality, that is the reality of God and not the reality of rock and roll, but the real reality, authentic reality, what you really are is that to which God calls you. And if we are leading our lives aright, we are moving in the direction, guided by, obviously, Holy Scripture, the lives of the saints, the teachings of the fathers, the doctrines of the church, the moral standards of the Judeo-Christian tradition, absolutely, for sure, yes, all of that. But the fact is, we become more real and more authentic as we come nearer and nearer to that icon that God created us to be when he created each one of us individually. As we say in this liturgy of St. Basil the Great that we celebrate on the Sundays of Great Lent, uh, that God knows us from our mother's womb. God knows us. On that, bet the ranch. That's not the question. The question is, do you know yourself? Do you know you? Well, that is a great thing. That is a great and creative act. That is the great adventure of being human and in Christ. On this day, therefore, that we celebrate the triumph of orthodoxy itself, that is, right worshipping of God. We are actually doing it by celebrating the restoration of the icon. And by celebrating the restoration of the icon on a given day, in a given city, Constantinople, in a given year, 843 AD, we are, of course, celebrating the reconstitution, the restoration of the icon who I am, the icon who you are, the icon who we are called to be. Here is both the, the amazing joy of being an Orthodox Christian, 
But here is also the tension that gives life some of its energy, some of its genuine pizzazz, because the world is always, always pulling us away from God. It has to. The prince of this world, Lucifer, is in a permanent state of revolt and mutiny against God, against love. For God is love. And therefore, eh, not every time that you and I have an argument as to where the spoon goes, um, an argument over whether we use this glass or that glass, but one of those fundamental divisive arguments that leave me feeling that you are eh, and knowing very well that you think that I am also another eh. That kind of, of argument that breaks us down. For sure, we have stepped far further and further away from the icon to which God calls us to be. The prince of this world, as Christ says, has nothing in me. But he has a kind of derivative and sick power. A dark force. Christ says, speaking as a man with a human voice, he who is simultaneously the pre-eternal God, the Son of the Father, that he saw Lucifer fall out of heaven. Why is it so hard to be good, if we know what good actually is? Why is it so hard because every time you and I do a good thing, we are ourselves being subversive to the powers that be. And the power that is, is the power of the prince, the sick, the dysfunctional, the evil prince of this world. He regards every time you and I refer ourselves to our Savior, Every time you and I stand in prayer, every time you and I see some need in some other person, and instead of looking the other way and walking past it, ignoring it as if it did not exist, stop and say, can I help you? Are you okay? Do you need something? That is an act of absolute horrific mutiny against the dark prince of this world. And he doesn't like he doesn't like mutineers. He doesn't like it when somebody turns to Christ, because we cannot turn to Christ without turning away from Him. At the heart of the triumph of orthodoxy, therefore, is the triumph of the authentic face that God sees in us, and that we, yes, are called to see in one another. Husbands in wives, wives in husbands, parents in children, children in parents. We are called upon to establish the terms of our true faces in one way. There is one word for all that in Greek, agape, love. God is love. We must be his. We must belong to love. 
Love itself, as you know, wears many masks. Love itself can disguise itself in many forms. It is up to us to find the authentic love. We do that by loving authentically. Love is not merely nice thoughts, pretty words. Love is deeds, practical acts, some of them extremely humble, some of them extremely quiet and simple. You know, <clears throat> when Christ is speaking to those who have been saved and those who are going to be damned, he says, well, you're saved because you took care of me when I was sick and in prison and all that stuff, you know, clothing when I was naked and so forth. And the others, well, you didn't do that for me. Remember the ones who were saved said, when did we see you thirsty and gave you some water to drink? They didn't know that they were doing this for Christ when they happened to see someone sitting there. Can I get you some water? Just a simple thing. Five minutes after you did it, you can't remember it. That night, if somebody says, did you give a glass of water to so-and-so, you could honestly say, no, I don't remember that. And you, you have genuinely forgotten. Such a simple act. And yet, when you have died and stand on the threshold of eternal life, you will discover that that cup of water saved you. That was when you acted in your true face. That is when you saw that person, perhaps even a stranger, and saw his true face. Now, Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist, a man of creative acts, writes the following. There was a, a village in Russia, small. At the edge of the village there was a run-down deferred maintenance shack in which lived a woman, an elderly woman who, as I recall, was named Matryona. Matryona was the worst woman that anyone had ever met. Nobody liked Matryona. I suspect Matryona did not like Matryona. She had a bad word for anyone who passed by her shack. Next to her shack, she had a little vegetable garden in which she grew that quintessentially Russian vegetable, onions. One day she was out in her uh, vegetable garden and she was checking the state of her onions and as you probably know, onions can go rotten in the ground. So she was pulling them up and throwing them out into the trash bin. By her shack at the edge of the village, there passed one day a beggar. So poor was he that he could barely warm himself with a few ripped, torn, and not very clean articles of clothing. He had wrapped bark around his feet for shoes, and he was starving probably to death. And so he was dragging himself towards the village in hope of finding something to eat, some crust of bread. 
So uh, he sees Matrona out in her vegetable garden, and he says, Madam, Gaspajoa, would you give me one of your onions? I am dying of starvation. She looks at him, and she swore at him, this poor beggar who has nothing, who is looking for just a crust. She swears at him. But madam, please, I'm dying. Can't you give me something? Isn't there something there you can give me? She yells at him, get away, go. He continues holding on to her broken down gate. Please give me something. Finally, she takes a rotten onion by its long green stem and she throws it at him to drive him away with all her might. But instead of receiving it as something to drive him away, he takes it, mostly rotten as it is, and he thanks her and he blesses her for it and he eats what is edible, what little there is left in it. And he goes on his way. Sometime later, something happened to Matrona that we all know is going to happen, and even Matrona knew it would happen, except she didn't really know it was going to happen. Do you know what happened to her? She died. It happens to all of us. And when she died, her soul, as we say, appeared before the gates of heaven, eternal life. And the angels came down, and they said, What good deed have you done? She says, What do you mean? Well, what have you done for another person in your life that we can use as your ticket of entry into eternal life, so to speak? A good deed? Did you... Did you mean a good deed? Uh, no. Uh, um, uh, no. Uh, do I have to know its name? What good deed have you done, madam? So then the angels come down a little closer to her and they, they start trying to help her. All right, when you were a child, when you were a little girl, did you ever do something good for someone? Well, I suppose I was a rather mean little girl, or so they said. Well, when you were older, they went through her whole life. Meanwhile, as time went on, she began to fall further and further away from the gates of eternal life and the angels. And she looked down and she saw where she was going, into that other place. And she became profoundly terrified. It was the most horrible thing that she had ever realized and she was going down into it like into quicksand. 
And the angels are saying, please try and think of anything, even some small thing that you did for someone else. I can't, she said. As she was just about to go all the way into that other place, in the far distance, she heard the voice of an angel moving very quickly. Wait, wait, he said. Don't let her go. I found it. I found something. She's filled with hope. What could it be? She can't think of what it could be. The other angels are rejoicing. Thank God you found something. And what the angel has found is a big, rotten onion. And they say, oh, you gave this to a beggar. Oh, she said, did I? Oh, yes, right. And the angels lean out of heaven, and they hold the onion towards her, and the long green stem is, and she's trying to reach the green stem, and at last, by the mercy of God, she grabs hold of it, and then with the other hand, and the angels begin to pull her up out of hell. Well, all the people that are down in hell saw her, and she was coming down to them, and they were gibbering at her. But now they see her feet going back up, and one of them, with a magnificent leap, jumps and grabs hold of her foot. So the angels are pulling on the onion, and the onion is pulling on Matrona, and Matrona is pulling on some poor soul who is down there. When Matrona realizes, however, that she has, so to speak, a passenger, she becomes profoundly indignant and angry, and she kicks at him, and she says, Let go of my foot. It's my onion. And at that very moment, the green stem that was pulling her to eternal life snapped, and down she went. In this story by Dostoevsky, we see people struggling to find their true face, struggling to find themselves as icon, as what Saint Seraphim always addressed as my joy. If you and I are icons of the living God, then we must be each other's joy. If we are not, Something is terribly wrong. When that ceases to be the profound truth of all my relationships, then I have failed Christ. I have failed to find my true face. I have failed to be the image, the icon. Well, we have much to think about this week, this week of the triumph of orthodoxy. Because the triumph of orthodoxy is, in a very real way, the triumph of the authentic face of man and God, as we discover one another. The shocking thing for all of us Christians, far more shocking than the things that are supposed to shock us through the media, is that Christ sets the terms of this adventure, this search for the real icon. God is love, as we know. And when we are love, 
we belong to him, but we also belong to one another. That is inevitable. But you see, Christ says that we must evenly love not only parents, children, family members, friends, and so forth. He says, love your enemies. To be an authentic face for my enemies, someone who evidences hostility for me, distaste for me, or worse of all, worse than hate, cold indifference towards me. This takes us more and more deeply into exactly the situation in which one day a man whose name was Nathanael found himself with Jesus of Nazareth. How do you know me, he said, How do you know what I am, that I am an Israelite indeed without guile? Because I saw you, said Christ. Suddenly, Nathaniel saw himself, and therefore saw Jesus of Nazareth. Just as Jesus had addressed him correctly, now Nathaniel is enabled, empowered, to see Christ for who he is, and he says, Ravi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Suddenly these two men saw each other and knew who they were. That is very largely the content of the human adventure. It is very largely the function of being an Orthodox Christian in hard times. It is the real meaning of that nice phrase, grace under pressure. Amen. <laughs>